So uh, we're doing, it's a very interesting seminar series. It's global history, like the Christian church as a global history. So it's where the Christian church, how it operated in different countries. So last week was Brazil. So I'm going to be finishing that up. And then this week we're going to be talking about India, which um, if you don't have a handout, there should be some handouts on the side. I, I would recommend you get it if you don't normally do it, just because there's a map on there and the map is really helpful for Americans <laughs> because we're really bad at geography, right? So um, yeah, that will be very helpful. All right, let's open with prayer. Father, I thank you so much that you have brought all these people here today, that uh, people of the word, desire not just the word of God in the Bible, but we desire to have a church, and we desire to feel unified to that church, and we want to know where our brothers and sisters are throughout the world. We want to know how the church is operated. We want to have an understanding of global missions. We want to be praying for that. We want your kingdom to grow and for you to add to that everywhere on this entire planet. Father, it's an amazing thing to me that the message started in such a small country, in a small city, and yet it has spread and exploded across the entire globe. And even though there are places that have not yet heard the gospel, we have uh, still made an amazing progress. The church has made amazing progress in spreading the gospel, and I pray that we would not falter, but we would continue conquering in your name. Thank you again. Bless this lesson. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... Uh, Brazil. I'm, I'm going to finish this up. He was starting to talk about Pentecostalism uh, last week. Who was here last week? Okay, so we, we have a general idea of Brazil and, and the history. I don't have to recap that. Uh, if anyone was not here, listen to Pastor Corey's message on uh, the website, and then you kind of pick up where I'm starting. But the last point he was making was there's a difference between Pentecostalism, the denomination, and Pentecostalism, what, what we would call charismatics, just people that have a sense in speaking in tongues and maybe prophecy or something like that. That said, uh, the group that ended up in Brazil were kind of the, the second type. There was a Pentecostal denomination that came there later, which was called Assemblies of God. You've probably heard of that before. Although the Assemblies of God that showed up wasn't actually the same Assemblies of God that was in the United States. What happened was a missionary came to uh, Brazil and then they called the Assemblies of God and said, can we make an Assemblies of God Brazil here? And they said, okay, just start it. And so there was no real connection to the leadership or anything like that. They just had the name because I think it carried weight. But what have you, that's basically what happened. So, um, but the people that first showed up, there was a guy named Luigi Franciscon, an Italian. And they were living in Chicago, uh, him and his wife. And they were uh, influenced by a particular event called the Azusa Street Revival. Anyone heard of that? Yeah, that's the big, like, Pentecostal thing that kind of spun out all of the various branches of it. There was this revival, if you want to call it that, that happened around there, and that's where Pentecostalism really took off, was this street revival. And so, ironically enough, whenever you read about Pentecostalism showing up in a lot of these places, it usually traces its roots back to that particular revival. So they went there, they quit their jobs in Chicago, they moved to South America as missionaries, they arrived in Buenos Aires, in 1909, which um, Pentecostals will say that 1900 to 2000 is the, the century of the Holy Spirit because uh, the revival happened around 1908. But eventually they moved to Sao Paulo, and that's where they start this, this section. Um, and then another one, like I said, the Assemblies of God shows up a little bit later. Um, that guy also 
came from Azusa Street Revival and showed up a little bit later. But the, the, the important takeaway here in Brazil is that Pentecostalism has grown quite a bit because the groups that started and they, in the 1950s, they numbered about 100,000, and today they, they number about 14 million. So you can see the, the rapid growth that Pentecostalism has in uh, Brazil. And the problem, I would say, with this, which is always a tough thing when we're talking about global hi Christian history, is when we talk about denominations taking root and their in various influences, the rise of certain ones, the fall of others, right? Uh, you see certain nations like the UK that used to be such a bastion of religious thought, right? Some of the greatest theologians came from Scotland, and yet the place is godless now, right? I have friends in the UK, they say, well, no one believes in God here. I know no Christians. And I'm like, that is mind-blowing to me, right? The only person they're hearing the, the gospel from is me across an internet connection telling them, right? That is bizarre. And yet, um, that's kind of how it is, right? No nation, Israel learned this lesson well, right? No nation is guaranteed uh, a certain amount of blessing because the blessing of God is in the people, right? The people is where the, the, is the church, not a particular nation or a particular building, so on and so forth. Um, one of the major influencers of keeping the Protestant church somewhat grounded was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Apparently he's a big deal in Brazil uh, because he has very strong reform theology, but he also kind of has some continuationist uh, leanings, let's say it that way. So in the conclusion, uh, just to conclude the Brazil portion rapidly, uh, one thing that I've noticed about talking about Brazil, talking about India like we're going to, is that I think the takeaway we take is that the Lord is building his church in all nations. Praise God. And that it, we have to be careful about the, the major three problems with any, um, any region, any country, no matter where we're talking about, right? Um, I think this might be in your notes today. Let's check if I put them in. Where'd it go? I see. Three seconds, I lost the map. Okay, let's see if it's here. Yeah, so if you look at the back of your handout, these three here, challenges to Christianity in post-Republic India, I think that you don't even have to say post-Republic India. I think that that's every nation. Ecumenicus, <laughs> I can't even say it. You can read it. Um, it basically means plural, plurality, plural, I can't even say plurality. Oh, man. Let's edit this in post, guys, so my uh, podcast sounds crisp and clear. So basically, that's when you merge as much of the churches together as possible, is what that word means. Liberalism and pragmatism. And those are the same problems that kind of plague uh, Brazil as well, right? Uh, the, the amount of spiritualism there, uh, Roman Catholics, uh, and specifically, the South America and Central America has a problem with iconography, right? The, the Virgin Mary. Um, one of the things that always kind of blows my mind about uh, Roman Catholic theology is if you get the doctrine book, like it's a small little book you can buy in a Christian bookstore, and it'll actually tell you the dogmas that you have to believe in be ordered in be, to be considered a Roman Catholic. So if you don't believe these dogmas, you're not a Roman Catholic. In that is the bodily assumption of Mary, assuming that she was assumed into heaven, right? She didn't die. She assumed in heaven. The perpetual virginity of Mary. She never had any other kids other than Jesus. And the immaculate conception of Mary, which basically means that she was without sin. If you don't believe those three things, you're not a Roman Catholic, as much as you say you are, right? Uh, so that's kind of a wild thing because that kind of almost deifies her, right? Even there's some people that want to make her a co-redeemer with Christ, 
there, there's factions in the Cardinals that want to do that, uh, the South American Cardinals. They always want to elevate her up to not just being the Virgin Mary, like it says in the creeds, but the mother of God, right? Like, it's, it's a higher title. You'll even see pictures of her, right, where she's in heaven. She has angels, like, under her, like holding up her, um, I don't even call that the veil. Um, there's a lot of iconography about that. And the reason, so the reason why these dogmas exist in that book is because of the South American influence. That's how powerful it is, right? It's, it's kind of a, the weird uh, Earth Mother Gaia, other nations have this, that have influenced the Christian church in that area. And it's so powerful, that faction, that they influenced Rome, right? So uh, that's not something that was always there in Rome, right? They'll say, oh, you know, the, the apostles can trace back the uh, uh, apostolic uh, succession, let's say. They say Peter's the first pope. And after that, there was popes after that, so on and so forth. And they say we can trace back our lineage, and that's why the Catholic Church is the true church. But that's not true. There's developments all throughout it, and the development of Mary is another one that's happened there. So, the problem with it is Roman Church looking for the first word, ecumenic, <laughs> ecumenism, <laughs> and wanting to unify the church by saying, okay, this is not such a big deal. Let's fold these Marian dogmas into our greater uh, beliefs. But of course, that causes a massive rift. The biggest one, I think, is that I don't know how you as a Christian can read some of the prayers to Mary and uh, not say, well, that sounds extremely heretical. Um, so there's never going to be unity between the Protestant church and the Catholic church just based on that alone. But I digress. Now we're going to move into India. Any questions about Brazil before we move on? No? Okay. Yes. Yes. South America, not just Brazil. Central America, right? Mexico, Mary is a big deal, right? All throughout Central America and South America. There's so many people there that are Catholics, and there's cardinals that come from there, right? Like um, Francis is from that region, you know? So it's the, the, the influence of those people cannot be discounted, right? The cardinals get picked from all over the world, and they go there, and it's very political, right? So, not cool. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So um, you may be aware of this. You may not be. This is once again a discretion, but it's kind of interesting. When it, when Christianity would go into various regions, they would do various kinds of things to uh, what's the word? Acclimate the local people to Christianity. I hate to say it that way, but I mean, in some ways, I agree with it. In some ways, I don't. So I don't think it's all bad. For example, you know, there's certain traditions we have, like, you know, Christmas traditions that aren't Christian, right? But they became Christian because we made them Christian, right? We showed up, we kicked out all the pagan gods, we're like, you know what, that tree, that's ours now, <laughs> right? Like, uh, and I don't feel bad about that, I have a Christmas tree. Uh, some people get weird about it, they're like, that's a pagan tradition. I'm like, do those pagan gods exist anymore? No, we took them. And you know what we did? We said, you can still celebrate all your traditions, let's just make them Christian things, right? Let's celebrate Christian things surrounding these, these areas. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? That's basically like folding in their festivals and their feasts and stuff and making it. But the problem is, when you do that too much, you go too far, you have religions in that, those zones that have certain mother worship or ancestral worship or uh, mother earth worship, nature worship, uh, Gaia worship, whatever you want to call it. And you're going to deal with those influences, which if you think about Central America, they have a lot of ancestor worship, right? 
So uh, I remember reading a book about this. I forget the name. If I remember it, I'll, I'll let you know. But they were talking about the influences and basically chaining the idea of all the native tribes that the Spaniards were dealing with and then the flow of that back and forth. And eventually it, it affected that. And because Marian dogmas only came around like 1940, they're relatively recent. They're not, they're not new. And that's kind of the wild thing. You think about, so a Catholic in year 1000 didn't believe these things. Were they really a Catholic? It's weird, it's strange. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting to see how this stuff influences, but we got to get started, otherwise we'll never get finished. And then Pastor Corey will have to deal with me being 15 minutes late, right? So then it'll just keep going out. It'll be crazy. So the nation has the largest population of functional English speakers. What nation has the largest population of functional, functional English speakers? And that is India, believe it or not. The reason why we have so many call centers that are Indian is not only because they speak English, but because they're almost exactly 12 hours ahead of us, which means that when we're all asleep, they can be awake. So if you need help at midnight, they're awake, right, in the middle of the day. What nation has the seventh largest number of citizens who call themselves Christians? Seventh largest is India. The nation has the, one of the oldest Christian communities on earth is India. That's interesting, right? We don't think of India as being a Christian nation, but there is Christian communities in India. So, the things to remember here in these classes, because these are more of history courses, these are more intellectual. Um, the reason why we're going over this is because we want to be reminded as Christians that God's word is going out to all the world and to all people, right? All tribes, tongues, and peoples. And it's good for us not to be American-centric, but to think about those things, to pray for these people. We do that sometimes when we say, this is the nation we're praying for, here's a number of Christians. But we really want to be thinking about these things. I was reminded of this passage in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. Um, you know, it's an interesting story. Jesus is teaching, and uh, he, he's teaching about the gospel. And in verse 46, it says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Now, from other parallel passages, we know that they kind of thought he was off his rocker a little bit, right? He's drawing these huge crowds. He's kind of making a ruckus. And he replies to the man who told him, and he said, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's something that we struggle with a little bit, I think, as Christians, that our natural families, our biological families, sometimes don't believe the gospel. And so we feel sometimes less unity with them than we do with the church, right? I can talk to a person from a completely different walk of life right? I had a friend who was like a football player, huge guy, I'm not that big, right? And uh, was not into computers at all. And yet, when we talked about the gospel, we were like on the same wavelength, right? We were talking about how to reach the people that we knew and um, how to talk to our family members, and we were studying the gospel together. And it was an amazing connection we had, even though we would have never connected in real life at all. Like, we had nothing in common other than the gospel. And yet, it was strong enough for us to be friends. And I think that that's an amazing thing. When we think about First Baptist Church of the Lakes. I, f I see that all the time, right? People that you're like, <laughs> such a mishmash of the people that get along and talk to each other, enjoy each other's company, and yet we're from all over, from all different walks of life. And God doesn't do that on accident, right? He saves young people, and he saves old people. He saves people that were criminals, and he saves people that had never committed a crime in their life, right? He, commits, he saves any kind of person you can think of. And he does that to show that there's nothing special in us, right? 
Like, we didn't do anything to earn God's love. God loved us first while we were unlovable. But he also does it to show us that there's no magic bullet that we can, that we can have or possess, like no pragmatistic way of telling it, no 10 steps, I'm just going to tell them the gospel this way, and then they're going to believe, right? I want to control who believes, right? Can't do that. We have to trust the Holy Spirit, and we have to trust the Word of God. We tell people the gospel that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and we trust the Lord that he says that his word is active and that it will actually change people's hearts. And when we believe that and we do what we're called to do, we see growth in countries that we would never have guessed have Christian communities like India. So the Indian context, we're, we're looking at this map. This map, if you don't have it, is really useful. Um, if you need a handout, they're on the sides. If anyone can help someone out that doesn't have it. But the reason why this is good is because, let's, be, let's face it, most of us, don't know what a map of India looks like. Here's a little interesting tidbit. Um, countries need ports, places to land ships. You think that if you look at a map and you see like a place is touching ocean, you can just land there. It's not true, right? Uh, you need, if there's cliffs there, you can't land there. If it's too shallow, you can't land there. There is actually more places to land and port in Europe than there are in Africa. Think about that. Giant African continent, less places to port than Europe, which is the small little narrow way, right? Because it's most of it's inland, right? So there's a little narrow area. That's actually the reason why Europe was such a trading post and Africa has no trade, right? Because there's no place to land in Africa. In fact, the, the major canal that goes into Africa is known as the Nile. What? Yeah, the, oh yeah, the Swiss Canal crosses it. But the one that goes internally, it's called the Nile River, right? But the Nile is only like 30 feet deep, which is not deep. By comparison, the Hudson River is like 1,000 feet deep, right? You can bring an entire like oil liner straight into the Hudson Canal or the Hudson River, right, right into New York and unload all the crates. But the reason why Africa could never get trade in was because you can't get a big heavy boat. They had to use like small little river skimmers all the way in. So where you land, where you make landfall, is really important in terms of how you have trade and how you get missionaries in, right? How do you get into a country that's hard to get into, right? So even America, think about this. Like, you have Mississippi River that comes down like this. How do you get left and right? That's why we had to build a railroad, because there's no river that connects here. M meanwhile, this is how Europe is. River is going like this. So they're able to go back and forth quite a bit. But they had still have a, had a road to China, the Silk Road, right, where they had to, like, pave it in order to get trade that way because there wasn't a river that extended all that way. Really interesting. You don't think of those things, that the reason why certain nations developed the way they did was literally just because of rivers, right, being able to move goods back and forth. So if you look at this little map here, see this really bright blue dot at the bottom? That's because that's the place that has the biggest port. It's called, Ma well, it's the Malabar Coast is the way it's called. It's changed its name quite a few times, but we'll call it the Malabar Coast for now. And that's actually where most of the trade hits. Um, that's where all the people go in and out. So, as you would assume, uh, that's the place where uh, a lot of Christian um, missionaries went to. So, there are only some areas in India where the Christians make up the majority, the, and all the little blue areas are the, are the concentrations of that. So, India itself is actually a very disorganized, and it's a personal polytheistic uh, there's supernatural fascination. Um, it varies wildly. Uh, I have an Indian uh, that works with me at my job, 
And she was telling me that, you know, a lot of people, when they think of India, they think of just one country. But it's kind of the mistake you make when you think of America as one country. We are, but the North and the South and the East and the West are so different, right? People say, oh, America doesn't have accents. I'm like, what are you talking about? We have the Boston accent, the Southern accent, the Texan accent, the West Coast accent, which is clear and articulate, right? And then you have the Northern Duluth accent, right? Don't you know and all that, right? There's so many different regional accents. You don't think of it because you're kind of closed off from where you live, right? But we are totally different. We're just kind of combined into a union of states, right? In the same way, India is the same way. It's a massive country that has various different states with different food, different dialects, different languages, and different religions. And so like any country that wants to unify itself, what it does is during the fourth century, which was called the Gupta dynasty, there was this attempt to merge all these various religions into one religion, right? Because that creates unity, that creates the ability to rule effectively. Um, some cultures like the Romans or others tried to make themselves like, oh, the emperor is also a god, right? Like worship the emperor supreme and then worship all the lesser gods however you want, your household gods, your little icon on the shelf, whatever you want, but just make sure that you give uh, loyalty to Rome. And the same thing happened in, in Hinduism. There's two streams. There's, I'm not gonna be able to pronounce this, but it's Vishnu, um, I just don't know the ism, and Shiva, you've probably heard those names. The funny thing is when I look these up, they're both claimed as the supreme deity of their religions, which is Hinduism. So that's an odd thing, but apparently they kind of merged together and they both became the supreme deity. Um, other traditional deities like Ganesh, if you've heard that one, which is an elephant head, human body, probably seen that. He's like usually sitting down and there's like a, a ring around the outside of him. Uh, very popular. He's uh, kind of the god of like good luck and things like that. So he's usually given for like accomplishments and, and jobs and things like that. Um, but he wasn't actually invented until late 5th century. That's 500 AD. Or wait, 5th century is, yeah, the beginning, right? I forget how the centuries work. It starts at zero, so it's 400, right? Yeah. Oh, it's 600, right? 400, right, that's what I'm saying, it's opposite, yeah. It's, it's always confusing, so it's 400. So it started then, which is interesting because uh, you don't, we know gods are made up, but it's just kind of funny that it happened so late, right? Christians were already operating for hundreds of years before uh, Ganesh was made up. Then in the lead up to independence, this unification effort was turbocharged throughout the country to graft in all the other streams of thought, including tribal, animist religion, and other established religions like Buddhism, and they pulled them all under this huge umbrella that we call Hinduism today. So when you say Hinduism, you're not being specific at all, right? It's just an umbrella term that uh, like describes a whole bunch of stuff. In fact, there's all these other different Hindu deities that I've seen in movies and other things like that. Um, anyone ever see a, a, to me it's well known, but maybe not to you. It's called Little Princess. You ever see that movie when you were a kid? And in Little Princess, she actually tells a story of this blue skinned guy. And as a kid, I'm like, who's this guy? Well, it's a Hindu deity, right? And that, because she's in India at the time and she's captured, well, she's not captured, but she's in an orphanage. And I, w I recognized when I was doing some research, I realized, I know that guy. But here's the weird thing. Vishnu, because he needs, they need to absorb all these gods, he has avatars. So he kind of is like, it's like modalism in Christianity. He appears in different modes and different avatars and he does things throughout society. But then he kind of comes back. It's very strange. Um, I, I recommend that you research this a little bit on your own because it is something that um, if you're going to talk to a person that comes from a Hindu uh, background, it's going to be it's going to be confusing.
they're going to use terms that uh, you're going to talk past each other quite easily, I think. Um, but the reason why we bring all these things up is because first, I think that Hindus will take false comfort in the idea that theirs is the most ancient religion and thus must be true, right? Like that's, that's an argument that I think a lot of people do make. Um, an ancient religion of India is not Hinduism. It's just the same complex mishmash of pagan religions that are throughout the entire fallen world. Like it's not unique. That's how they all are. In fact, anything like what we mean by Hinduism didn't even appear until the Christian churches in India were centuries old. The Christian church in India were already there for hundreds of years before this happened. Second, because it's helpful to understand that the early development of Christianity in India was not a contest with Hinduism, but it was the same battle against various pagan and polytheistic spiritualities that marked the missionary effort in much of the world for the first few centuries. So how do we get a map that looks like this? All right, let's look at the map again. Well, there's a great deal of confusion about the history of Christianity in India. Many think of India as a Hindu nation with a generous minority of Muslims tossed in, but in fact, um, Christian, Christianity is a native to India as any place on earth. So how is that the case? Well, the, while the roots are debated, um, the long-standing tradition holds that the Apostle Thomas himself brought the gospel to India about 52 AD. So Thomas shared the gospel with a northern Indian king called Guthathar, who imprisoned him. But that very night, the king's brother Gad died. And as a result of the dream involving his just dead brother, this king had a change of heart, and he released Thomas and gave the apostle leave to evangelize throughout the domain. And as the story goes, as a result, churches were planted in North India about 60 AD. Now, the interesting thing is that the story was generally discounted by European historians and dismissed as though this is made up, right? This is a nice thing for Christians to tell each other. This is not true. Because there was no account of this first Indian king named Gundithar in any historical account. Then, in 1884, near the city of Kabul in Afghanistan, a store of ancient coins were discovered, all bearing the name of this king. So, this happens quite a bit, actually, in archaeology, where they say the Bible was wrong, and then uh, archaeology backs it up. So, they then started uh, researching this, and subsequent archaeology revealed that this guy was actually the king, and he reigned in the 50s and 60s, confirming the account of church history that Thomas was in this region. He also was, it was also confirmed he had a brother named Gad, who died during his reign. So, this has taken this, this idea of this historical account from being like a fanciful made-up thing to, it's a contested theory, right? They're not going to say it's true, but they're saying it's a contested theory with, with it. But what is not in doubt is that by 180 AD, gospel missionary work in India was undertaken by Alexandria and Egypt. And in that year, a missionary named uh, Pachanus sailed to the Malabar coast of India to spread the gospel. So, if you look at the map, the little uh, light blue up here is where they think that um, Thomas was, but he started spreading it through North India, but then the southern uh, aspect was, uh, was actually, um, there's was, there was a missionary that went there uh, to the Malabar coast in 180 AD. And by 200 AD, clear examples of crosses and Christian inscriptions are found on plates and other items of church usage throughout southwest India. At the time, the Malabar coast was a major trading site for world commerce, which also facilitated the comings and goings of missionary activity. Now, we call these Christians, and they're still called to this day apparently, India's Thomas Christians, not to be confused with Thomas, people that believe in Thomas Aquinas. 
Thomas Christians in India, uh, even though they're Southern, they still uh, tie their roots back to Thomas, who uh, were, was evangelizing in the North. And these churches tend to look Eastern, not Western. They follow, they found their fellowship and theology from the centers of Eastern Christianity uh, from modern-day Turkey, Damascus and Baghdad, all part of the Syriac Christianity line. Later, their numbers were enhanced by two large migrations from Persia and those fleeing the Muslims in 700 AD. So um, I think you'll have a little bit of that in your notes. If not, uh, yeah, you have a little bit of timeline here, which is useful to understand like where those, uh, those lines branch together. By 800 AD, you had a unique Christian community that was not Roman Catholic and was not exactly Eastern Orthodox. It was a mishmash of the two lines and people coming there because you had different people uh, fleeing the Muslim, uh, because you know the Muslims were basically uh, going all the way through the Middle East at that point. Although whether because of Thomas the Apostle himself or the waves of Christian immigrants later from the Middle East, the historic church in the Southwest India took on a more Eastern flavor. Not that they were free from errors and syncretism, but their errors were their own, not imported from the East or the West, which set the stage for some great conflicts to come. In 1498, Vasco of Portugal came to the southwest coast of India to establish trading cities. With the power of the Portuguese military, they settled coastal enclaves like Goa and began to try to convert the Thomas Christians to Roman Catholicism. And they did that with arrests, impositions of doctrines, mass conversions under threat, kidnapping of their high bishop and shipping him to Lisbon. And in 1565, their high bishop, uh, Mar Joseph, and his people had enough of the Portuguese, who they viewed as impious hypocrites. Uh, as one historian puts it, he repudiated the Latin, the Latin rite and renewed his attachment to the old ways, abandoning mandatory confession, condemning image worship, and insisting that Mary be known only as mother of Christ and not as mother of God. But when his actions became known, he too was hunted down and arrested and sent to Lisbon for indoctrination. So how did the church, Thomas Church respond to this? Their high bishop is captured and sent to Lisbon. Some responded in biblical faithfulness. In 1653, a majority of Thomas Christians swore an oath. It was called the Conan Cross Oath to reject the errors of Portuguese Catholics and would have nothing to do with the Jesuits, whom they detested. They would not allow the Portuguese or the Roman Catholic Church to interfere in ecclesial matters. Thus began 700 years of confusion and mixed lines of authority among these Thomas Christians in India. Same came, some became autonomous, with full, communion with, uh, with full communion with the Catholic Church, and some adhered to the Eastern Church. Some organized themselves under the bishop of the Eastern Church, some under the bishops of Rome. This is the really confusing thing about Eastern versus West, is that uh, my friend got married in a Greek Orthodox Church. I'm thinking, okay, Greek Orthodox, that's Eastern Orthodox, right? I get there, I'm talking to the lady in the, in the little entry hall where they have all their literature and stuff, and she says, oh no, we're allied with Rome. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, there's certain... Uh, I forget what the word she used, but there are certain Eastern churches that are actually like, they think that the Roman Pope is the Pope. So even though they're called Eastern Orthodox, they're still aligned with Rome. It's very confusing. So I'm like, oh wow, now I have another question to ask when someone tells me they're Eastern Orthodox. I'm like, are you? Or are you still Roman, kind of? It's, it's very confusing. Any questions of what we covered so far? No? Okay. There's a lot of terms here. Um, like I said, if you guys are interested in this, you can either look them up later, or you can ask me and I can give you my notes if you are interested in certain things like the Conan Cross Oath, um, what that actually entailed and what they swore to. But here's the question. Do you want more confusion? Because 
Part of this confusion was due to the arrival of the Dutch. They conquered the Malabar coast in 1663, and then with that, all of the European missionary leaders were moved. Indigenous leaders were appointed among the factions. Syrian Catholics, Syrians sorted out their allegiances, um, and now there's more groups from Rome, there's more groups from Europe, and the Anglicans show up, and with their Reformed theology with them to, to get in the mix. So beginning in the early 19th century, Anglican missionaries began streaming into India through the Malabar coast, of course, and they work along existing Christian communities. For the most part, the arrival of Anglicans pushed the Syrian Catholic deeper into cooperation with the Patriarch of Antioch, that's the Orthodox Church. But some of these historic churches believe the Bible. St. Thomas Anglicans emerged as the first Reformed group in this community. And by 1879, so we've gone from 1600 to 1800, the first diocese of the Church of English were established. So by the early 1880s, churches began to break away and a doctrinal reform took hold. And then we have the modern Thomas Church now born in this Reformation. But then in 1940, so about 60 years later, the Thomas churches began to slide back into the Syrian formalism and the theological liberalism, and another reform movement began, which is kind of the pattern we always see, right? Where it's like there's a reformation, then there's a slide into theological liberalism, and then there's a reformation, and so on and so forth uh, forever until the Lord comes back. So in the end, this, the leaders were put out of the, the Thomas church, and they formed the St. Thomas Evangelical Church in 1961 and that group exists to this day. And if you read their translated statement of faith, it reads very, very similar to uh, the Nicene Creed. I, that's the best way I can put it. Um, they're very orthodox in the right way. I'm, I mean orthodox in terms of the faith, not orthodox in terms of the church. So we praise God that he's faithful to preserve a witness through all this history, right? You, th you hear how messy that is. Like any nation's is messy, but that's, that's pretty messy. Even just going through a very fast very rapid overview of all the stuff that happened. Um, you know, you have Thomas planting the churches of the north, and you have a missionary start coming in through the south, the rapid development of Roman churches, the rapid development of eastern churches. Then you have a whole bunch of people fleeing from other areas. Then there's other churches. Then the Anglicans show up, and the Reformed Catholics, or the Reformed Reformers get in there, and they all mix together. They all form different churches. They all break away. Uh, they start to merge. They start to break away. Um, I mean, I would like to see some kind of uh, an animation online of the development of all these things and the growth. One thing that I point your attention to that um, I must have skipped over, but if you see over here, there's like a really dark blue off to the left. And um, you'll see it's, it's kind of interesting because there's like this entire chunk of land uh, that's not included in India, but then there's like a connection. That just has to do with the unification of India itself. Um, but the reason why that entire section uh, is Christian, and actually it's Protestant Christian for the most part, is because it's an entire different people group. It's considered Indian, but it's, it's completely separate from the major course of India. Any questions? Any thoughts? All right, we'll move on. Oh, there's there? So, um, here, let me look it up here. Oh, where is it? She asked me the question. I asked for a question. Hold, please. Yep, there it is. 
Okay, so you have the other side of the country, the far eastern extreme. These are the historical tribal states that were folded into the Indian Republic in 1947, so relatively recent, right? This is way after what we're talking about. That's why we haven't gotten to the notes yet. But I had it in the beginning. That, this is particularly when the country gained independence from the British. So when the British, this was, these were British colonies, so after they gained independence from the British, they joined the greater uh, Indian uh, state. So um, in the notes, they don't have a, a particular name or, or people group, but that's the reason why they're so heavily uh, Christian, is because they were colonized by the British, and that's where majority of the British were staying. Um, it says that 90% are actually majority Baptist, believe it or not. Okay, I think we're making good time. Early modern missions to India. Despite persecution and trouble, there has never been a time when Christians were not going to or coming out of India. But in decades following the start of the Protestant Reformation, a special emphasis on the evangelization of the heathen became a major concern for Protestants. Interestingly, the root for much of the missionary movement of the late 1600s comes largely from the effort of three cousins in different countries. There was a guy named Hermann Frankel of Germany, and he conceived a plan to take the gospel to the nations. He stated that the Christian obedience to the Great Commission, if taken seriously, required that every single soul on earth, whether child or adult, male or female, should have a continuous personal access to the word of God, and they should be enabled to read it in his or her own mother tongue. To that end, he embarked on a grand effort to improve literacy and to help churches preach the gospel throughout Germany, um, all the way to Prussia. But Germany was too small a thing, so he enlisted the help of two of his cousins, also devout evangelicals, Queen Anne of Great Britain and King Frederick of Denmark. An informal, an informal partnership was formed that led to the establishment of multiple church missionary societies in all three nations with the aim of Bible translation, literacy development, evangelization, and church planting. So numerous German and Dutch missionaries were sent out, of in, out to India over the next half century. A century before William Carey sailed for Seminpur, modern-day Calcutta, in 1789, there was already missionaries there who were planting churches among Tamil and Telugu of so South India. In 1727, they established their first mo uh, model school. And by 1741, the number of baptized church members among these congregations came to about 3,700 adults. At the time, observers noted that the great secret behind Schwartz's unusual success was that he focused most of all of his training, uh, he spent all of his time on training competent pastors and local evangelists. So he wasn't trying to do it all himself. He was trying to train up the local people to be competent pastors and local evangelists, which is kind of like our model today. That's the, the best model that we have, is to send missionaries to other places and to train up local men to do it themselves. Um, because we just can't support sending missionaries all the time. It was these often uncelebrated Indian elders who carried the gospel and planted churches long after Schwartz died in 1798. Likewise, in 1973, the British Baptist William Carey arrived in the Dutch colony of Seminpur. There he established a school and spent the next 41 years laboring as an educator and evangelist. And at the end of his 41 years, he counted just 700 converts, but he had laid a solid foundation. In the years that followed his death in 1834, dozens of churches and many more souls were converted by the men and women he trained. And we don't have much time to talk about the amazing work of the Spirit amongst the Naga people, 
in eastern India. But uh, the, the roots and the work, um, I don't know what the, the analogy you, you would use, but the, the seeds that you plant have fruit in all kinds of different ways. They spread to all kinds of different areas. They affect people that you don't even think will, they'll affect. So even though William Carey didn't have as impressive a impact over 41 years as we would expect, the fact is we see the growth that he has to, to this day. Much of the modern history of Christian work in India has unfortunately been more challenging and discouraging. Both from without and within, there has been great challenges to the work in the gospel of India. From without, the appearance of Hinduism, because remember this is a relatively recent development, uh, the, the merging of all of the tribes and tongues, it's a social and political force as much as it's a religious force. That's the thing that we kind of don't connect with because we have to our benefit and to our ill, it's hard to distinguish it. We have tried to separate religion from governance, and that was to protect us from governments, not ourselves from religion. But the effects of it has kind of made uh, nations atheistic, right? Um, at, least in their, at least in their policies, their policy decisions that they have. But in a lot of other countries, you can't separate the country itself from its national religion. Its national religion informs what it does right? Uh, this is why, uh, you know, Muslims, we haven't seen many of these videos, but you remember when there was videos online about them capturing journalists and uh, taking their heads, and they would have them denounce Christ before they did it, and I can just imagine being a journalist going, okay, yeah, I denounce Christ, right? Like, because to them, they didn't understand what they were asking. Oh, is this the only way to keep me alive? And then they would cheer and say, look, you've denounced, and because to them, Christianity is synonymous with America, because in their minds, you can't have a nation that doesn't have a religion, right? So for them, for us, we understand that loyalty to Christ is in your heart. It's not in an outward sign or being a, born into a particular nation. But a lot of other nations are not that way. So when you are born into a place like India to have a nat national religion like Hinduism, to have people come in and say that's wrong, it's actually attacking your national identity. It's like a person coming in and saying you shouldn't have guns and not eat bacon, right? Like America's going to have a problem with that, most of them. Right, so you, it's in the same way, Hindus are actually very anti-Christian, uh, more so than you would, you would imagine, uh, which is interesting because you, you would think of, at least I thought of this before research, India being a very peaceful place, you know, you see all the pictures of people doing yoga, they're all in like the lotus position, right? Um, it's not the way it is. And once again, I think that we have a very uh, warped view of that because we are looking at only particular factions, regions, areas of India and we don't realize India is a massive country, just like America is a massive country, right? A lot of different areas, a lot of different scenes, a lot of different people. So certain traditional religions that existed prior to the merge of Hinduism still is there. And the problem is the system altogether is very disorganized. People do what they want. In the 1820s, as a part of a reaction to the accelerating conversions among these people that uh, William Carey and so on were, were evangelizing, um, Hinduism kind of sprang into an aggressive stance. It, it came into the scene. And it sought to bring some kind of order to this polytheistic stew of India. And the last thing they wanted was this, this group of people saying, no, all of that's junk. <laughs> None of that's true. And we're not going to blend into your polytheistic stew called Hinduism. We're not going to merge our ideas into yours. 
right? That's what the Christians were saying to this governmental group of high caste scholars that wanted to merge all these religions into this one term called Hindu and try to bring this not only faith cohesion, but once again, political cohesion to the nation. And they were doing that specifically because they needed to fight the British. And the only way they can do that is if they're unified as a nation. So they're like, okay, religion's super important. We got to merge that. Oh, these annoying Christians aren't allowing us to do this, but we need to fight the British. And so obviously that creates a lot of conflict, a lot of problems. So that's why the shocking of intolerance of, the, of any non-Hindu peoples, um, it's shocking intolerance, this government system, of any non-Hindu people is in a sense just as a political expression of that goal that enlivened the invention of the modern Hinduism 150 years back. And it's the same problem we always have, unity and nationalism. But Christianity in India has also suffered many blows from within. The three worst being, right, our own version of trying to bring unity, ecumenism, theological liberalism, and pragmatism, which is the last note on the back of your sheet here. This idea that we want to drive to have all, we, had, we want to have visible unity of all Christians led to the merger of the Anglican, Methodist, and Presbyterian churches in one church body called the Church of South India. But while their motive may have been well-meant, the fruit was bad. The only way to create outward visibility and unity was to ignore and to confuse doctrine. In the end, this became the superhighway for liberal theology and the loss of the gospel. One would be hard-pressed to hear a biblical gospel in a CSI church today. The same goes with the Church of North India, formed under similar mergers in 1970. As one observer put it, the formation of these two churches, CSI and CNI, confused doctrine, minimized uh, polity such that much good was lost and little was gained. Along with these two, the third bane of Indian Christianity has been pragmatism, meaning this kind of thinking that looks for immediate, visible results more than careful fidelity to the Bible. Why has this happened, especially in India? One reason seems to be the vast population, so obviously lost in idolatry and sin. Many a well-intentioned pastor and missionary seems to have been overcome by the sheer numbers in India and decided they have to come up with some kind of way to spread the gospel and plant churches faster. Some even demand that they have to spread it faster than the rate of population growth. Otherwise, they think Jesus is losing out to demographics. The result has been a subcontinent that is particularly characterized by missionary equivalents of get-rich-quick schemes, where each new year or two, there's new key methodology that claims that it'll bring massive movements to people of Christ and thousands of churches planted with little effort. So you have all this money that comes in from various groups. They try this new fad way of preaching the gospel and spreading the gospel. They plant a bunch of churches. They rapidly do it. They see what seems to be temporary growth as people start to come to Christ, but then they fall away because they were there for the spectacle and not there because they really believed, right? That kind of pragmatism is the exact same pragmatism we struggle with here. So not only are we encouraged that there are true brothers and sisters in India, I guess we can be encouraged that they deal with the same kinds of short-sighted, bad pragmatism that we have to deal with here in America as well. Along with this pragmatism comes with an emphasis on parachurch organizations rather than local churches, right? These kinds of focused organizations are easier to lead, and they're easier to raise funds for than the often messy work of local churches. The problem with parachurch organizations, I'm not you know, bad-mouthing parachurch organizations. Um, I understand why they exist. But the problem with it is uh, local churches, especially in poor countries, need all the resources they can. It's when you, give your, when you give your meager resources away 
to parachurch organizations, um, you're not always guaranteed that they're going to uh, have your best intentions, if, if I can say it that way. And um, there's something called brain drain, which is the idea that where the money and the opportunity is, you tend to draw away the most promising local pastors to the parachurch organization rather than staying where they are. Yes? So a parachurch organization, uh, thank you for asking that question in case no one was following me, <laughs> is like, uh, think of the Southern Baptist Convention, right? It's a church organization that exists over parachute, para over a, all the other small local churches. And sometimes they can be good, like cooperative program, right? We can send people to seminary that can't afford to go there through the cooperative program. We, we can't really afford a lot of missionaries on our own, but we can give a portion of our money to this parachurch organization. They can fund missionaries. Those are good things, right? But like I said, the downsides, because there's always pros and cons to anything you do, the cons to that, especially in this context, is that instead of money coming from Western churches and going to local churches, you're relying on this parachurch organization to distribute the money, which makes sense because we can't give directly to an Indian church. I don't know where they are. I, I need to rely on this parachurch organization. But are they, are they going to things we want or are they funding their latest fad? you know, thing. Are they building churches and doing the secret sensitive thing or, God forbid, prosperity gospel stuff? You have no understanding of what's going to happen. And if they want to do it, there's no oversight or control. They're not guided by the same kinds of things that guide the local church. How do you bring a parachurch organization, which is a business, to under church discipline, right? You can't, you can't have the same controls that the Bible has. It's, it's a very difficult, um, it's, once again, pragmatism. I can see the pragmatic reason for having them, but we have to be very aware of the cons that are surrounded it. I think we have to hold our own leaders to account to make sure they're holding those other leaders to account and that they're not wasting those kinds of funds. And, and the, the last thing I want to hear is that I've been giving to uh, missionary work and finding out that $2 out of every 50 were actually used to convert people to the gospel and the rest was paying salaries somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. In the 60s and 70s, this was very uh, popular, remember? The Campus Crusade for Christ. Oh, right. It started in Philippines, or universities, and I was a product of that. Oh. But I did not leave the local church because mm -hmm. I knew that it's a parish church. I have to be in a local church. Right. But of course, you cannot. We can. Nobody can monitor the effectivity. Mm -hmm. And only the Lord knows how many lives were saved because of those parish churches. That's why we have conflict with our local church before. Right. Because it was preached, like it was preached in the pulpit that some of you are going to parish churches. I said, they're talking about us, but they do not really know <laughs> what these organizations were doing. Right. Brett knows about inter-varsity. 
Right. So we had a Nurses Christian Fellowship before, and I came from that. I am like this because of those part of church, part right. church organization. So I just want to let you know that oh, yeah, some no. part of churches are... No, absolutely. And I'm going to repeat that just for anyone that yeah, didn't hear it. I just want to make our brothers and sisters understand that truly those part of churches are still ongoing right now. Mm-hmm. Actually, the you know, this, uh, the group that went to Maui, Graham, that could be considered a part of church. And many members. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, the organization yes, group. Yes, organization, mm-hmm. but they're doing it's more social, but they also carry the gospel with them. No, that's a good point. Um, Sister Cora was, was just pointing out that, you know, there's, there's organizations like Campus Critics Aid for Christ uh, and others that give people the opportunity, especially in where they are, to hear the gospel in various contexts, uh, to have unity in different jobs like the nurses' organization. Mm-hmm. You are on the throne, who is on the throne, mm-hmm. kind of thing. But we as Christians, now that we are older and more mature, can um, um, deviate or add to our Christian Right. Like I said, I, w- I was saying, I'm not trying to bash uh, parachurch. I think, like I said, there's pros and cons. The pros are obviously that there are places and areas that they can reach. There are people that hear it that, that don't. There are a way to, to cooperate together. I'm, my whole thing is that I just think that we need to be careful that we understand how they're being operated, how they're being managed, where your money is going. Don't just give to a parachurch organization or be involved without understanding. Are they really being effective? Are they being f- uh, faithful to the gospel message? Uh, one way that we could do it better in the future is if we linked parachurch organizations to a local church. Like Apologia does a lot of parachurch organizations, but they have a local church in Arizona. So if you had a problem, you could, you could go to them directly, I guess, or write them or call them. Um, last part. Added to this, all these problems we talked about in India, the prosperity gospel, of course, is also in India as well. Uh, eats up the lives of Christians and churches. Entices many into a religion called Christianity, but it's just like a lot of Hinduism, right? Offering up prayers and, and offerings in order to get something from God, um, trading something for some kind of favor or blessing or, or money. And put all together, all these things we're talking about, it seems like a pretty discouraging picture. But as we look at the history of India, we see that India has always looked discouraging, uh, right? These deep-seated idolatries, religious intolerance, poverty, the caste system, opposition to conversion, all these have marked India for hundreds if not thousands of years. And yet, just as in the past, God continues to advance his gospel in India. India has never seemed like a welcoming and easy mission field, but just as in the past, slowly here and faster over time, uh, there are sudden advances. Like among the Tamil or the Naga, God builds his church. Those were the churches that uh, William Carey was involved in. So our own church knows and rejoices in faithful churches with whom we partner, right? Because we have that cooperative system and we give to missionaries and we have our own missionaries that go to various places and are trying to um, establish churches and teach locals uh, about the gospel. 
We hear regularly of Hindu background conversions and new churches being carefully planted. Um, I, I, the one thing I would just say we would end with is just let's pray for India. Let's uh, remember our brothers and sisters there that they're, they're living and they're operating in a very difficult context. And, uh, and yet they're faithful. And um, I, I was looking for something, talking about parachurch, I was looking for something that we could, uh, some further resources that you could, that you could give to, but I, I couldn't find any that were specifically for India. So I apologize for that. And we'll, we'll keep looking and see if there's something that we can give to so that there's a, a, a parachurch organization that's respectable that we can help build the church in India. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you again for um, that we live in America and that you've given us so many blessings that we have uh, the word of God in our own tongue and that we know your truth, that we can meet without the government um, coming and uh, persecuting us for meeting, that we can uh, build one another, another up, that we can preach the gospel in the street, and even though we may be called names and um, maybe thrown something at, something thrown at us, Lord, that we are not um, imprisoned for it, that we are not beaten for it. Lord, we live in a, in a place that it's, it's not persecuted yet, and yet we think of our brothers and sisters where they are persecuted, that they have to be careful about how they convert, who they talk to, who they tell, um, how public they are with uh, spreading the gospel. Um, give them wisdom in that. Grow your church. We know that your word is effective, that it can change the heart, that you can take out the heart of stone and you can put it in the heart of flesh. I pray that you would grow your church. I pray that you would expand it mightily. I pray that you would put the Western countries to shame, that you would shame the strong with the weak, and you would show them that, that, that your word, that your gospel is more important than anything we hold dear here, that we would hold on to your truth more than the things in our own lives. Give us a heart for other people. Give us a heart for our family members and our friends and the people we haven't told the gospel to. Give us courage and boldness. Give us the words to speak when we don't know what to speak in those moments that we tell people about the gospel. Help us to encourage one another as the local church. Help us to build one another up. And when we fail, help us to strengthen each other. That's what we need each other for. Thank you again for all the good things that you've given us. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.